I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and putting history to rights. We're the podcast where historians face their nightmares head on. I'm public historian Paul Wavell and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host, fellow historian and recently emerged from the British National Archives, Kyle Glover. Hi everyone. How was the archive? Busy. I was there for hours and I've still not even scratched the surface as usual. Yeah. I'm back again this weekend, I believe. Oh, probably. Well, this week, dear listener, we're going to court controversy, possibly even destroying a cherished priest of British pride. Ladies and gentlemen, to do this, we welcome author, historian, journalist, and yesterday channel regular, Guy Walters. Guy, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me on. And I'm, 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 I'm proud to say that yeah, you introduced me as a man from yesterday. So as we now know, I'm yesterday's man. So there we go. <laughs> of course. You yes. said it. So when you said I was going to meet my rage or meet my nemesis, it's not you two, is it? I'm going to be talking about something else, of course. No, you know, oh. this isn't a Paxman interview here. Either. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure you can handle one of those. Um, well, no, basically, this is your opportunity to completely let fly and get everything off your chest, that which you haven't got round into successful books already. Now, you're the first person we worked with at Chalk Valley all those years ago. So we've known you quite a while. We've been friends ever since. And um, Kyle and I have both appeared on your show. So it was only fair that we return the favour. Um, but for just those people out there that might not have a subscription to the Yesterday channel, <laughs> tell us a bit about you and your career so far then, Guy. It's on Freeview. You can watch me for free. Um, my, my career that culminated in being on the Yesterday channel, I think I'm on the Yesterday channel every day, literally. It sort of becomes a sort of joke at home, which is sort of turn it on and it's something like war factories or Nazi victory or what on earth or, or you know, World War Two from above. Um, I appear on all these shows for, a, I like to think, a fairly good reason, which I've written quite a few books around the war, not really about the war. I've written um, books about the Great Escape. I've written books about Nazi hunting. I've written books about the Berlin Olympics, which of course is to do with the Third Reich. I've done an anthology of World War II memoirs. I've written four thrillers, 
set in and around the war. I also have another life in which I write chick lit. You two didn't know that, did you? I may have heard certain dark yeah, rumors. Yeah, you've heard certain dark rumors about the chick lit. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, but we, 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 that, 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 that's, that's we can say for another night. So yeah, so that's, I mean, so I sort of juggle three balls in the air, essentially. So I do my books. And my new book I'm writing at the moment is a biography of Joseph Mengele. That's a nice, pleasant topic yes. to, oh, yeah. to spend on yeah. Um So I'm working on that. I've also been commissioned to do a history of the Gestapo. So it's it's very sort of third Reiki, if you like. Um, then I can uh, see why you do chiclet. If that's I, I know, your... it's a no, it's a lovely break writing chiclet. <laughs> For the love of doing... God, have no crossover, please. Yeah, yeah, yes, I know that the. the, the... <laughs> There are an enormous amount of bad taste jokes that I could, I could, which I have made in private, and that's where they're going to stay. Mm-hmm. But um, so I have these sort of three balls I jugged in the air. So I write the books of fiction and nonfiction. Um, then I do the telly, usually on yesterday, but I also on things like history and Netflix. Actually, there's a really good show called How to Become a Tyrant, which I'm on at the moment. Um, oh, yes. And then a lot of people, yet. Yeah, no, good. It's not bad. And then I get a lot of people sort of, you know, tapping on my shoulder, sometimes literally in the street saying, I saw your, saw your Hitler's Circle of Evil, which is a sort of big 10 part Netflix show that I'm on, which is a good show, actually. Uh, and I take no credit for that. It is a good show. So I do quite a lot of telly. And then also I do quite a bit of journalism as well. So I, I mean, that's how I started. So I started writing books because I was working at the Times and I came across this book in the literary editor's quarterly book sales. As you can imagine, a newspaper literary editor gets sent tons of books for free from publishers. And then at the end of every quarter, he sold them for two quid a hardback, one quid a paperback. You know, and these are the latest books. So some of them are really good. And and I came across this book called Renegades by uh, a man who is now a very, very good friend called Adrian Wheel, which is all about this British unit of the SS called the British Free Corps. Uh, you know, Google it if you haven't heard of the British Free Corps. And there are about, you know, 30 to 60 British and Commonwealth troops who are in the SS. And I thought, this is an amazing idea for a thriller. And that's the that was the topic of my first thriller, you know, somewhat based on Adrian's book, much to his yeah. chagrin. So anyway, I so that is, um, you know, how I came to end up writing, you know, history. I mean, I, I wrote these thrillers and then I started writing history and then, you know, it, it sort of tumbled like that. So I never read history at university. Um, I read English literature. And, you know, I, so I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a sort of blend, a hybrid, really. Yeah, I think Kyle is the only person that actually read history at university <laughs> here. And I read chemistry and then human physiology. Right. Well, that's the proper, proper. I mean, that meant you probably worked at university, Paul. Um, no, I, I say I read, I didn't graduate. Oh, you didn't graduate. <laughs> Kyle, yeah. where did, Kyle, where did you do history? I did it at the Open University. Oh, right. Okay. So I so worked you, and did you my work. university course. <laughs> you mug, you yeah, utter mug. Idiot. I did no work at university, literally none. Uh, I can't literally remember. Well, of course, you were reading English literature. I know, it was a total loss. It was a total loss. <laughs> Anyway, can, there we go. I can hear um, the hate mail coming in. And that's before we so, get to our topic. Yes. Well, let's start that avalanche for, uh, for the moment then. So, Guy, feeling angry? I, I'm enraged. <laughs> tell us, tell our listeners what you wish people would just get over. I would love them to get over the idea that the great escape was so great. In fact, I think it was rubbish. I think I think it was 
I think it was a bit shit, actually. Oh, God. I think The Great Escape was a disaster. I think it was something that is kind of glorified, fetishized. I think it's a story of a disaster rather than the story of something truly great. I mean, I... I wrote a book called The Real Great Escape. And the more I looked into The Great Escape, the more I realised this was not so great. And I'm not the only person to think that because there were people at the time who were in the camp in Silesia, in what is today Poland, but was then and even before the war, Germany, who who just thought this was a mad idea. You're, you're going to try and break out all these people in one go is that really going to work? Are you going to get them home? Is it really going to achieve any realistic impact on the German war effort or anything like that? Are you not just needlessly risking the lives of young men? Is this not just folly? And yeah. indeed, so is it? So the questions are, why am I enraged about it? I think it was folly. I think it was the product of the hubris of one man. I think it was you know, you don't you don't need to fight every battle to win a war. There's some battles you can just walk away from knowing you don't need to fight them. I, I think it was in many ways a total waste of time. And I think that it's surrounded by a lot of other sub myths like it's your duty to escape. Not true. Yeah. Come on to that. So I think you know, it makes me angry because the film is is fun and it's good, but it ain't the truth. You know, those prisoners who did escape were led by a man who I think had a somewhat messiah messianic complex, shall we say. And yeah. I think that it, it didn't, it didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. They were warned not to do it, not just by the Germans, but you know, by others. And I, so I think it's, 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 you know, we celebrate the great escape. I've just been on a three part channel five program, which I do recommend watching on catch up. Yeah. And they edited out, quite a lot of me being negative about the great escape as well they might but i was surprised how positive you appeared on that yeah, show I, I know and i and and we'll come on i'm sure guys about this whole idea of blowback you know this whole idea that actually if you get too many people out you're gonna make life actually harder rather than easier i think i think it was a a, a really silly thing to do i don't want to be too rude in my use of language about it because you know 50 people were shot dead and you know i i one has to respect the memory of those men that they are still people's fathers and you know grandfathers and great uncles or whatever it is so you know i'm not going to sit here and go those men were idiots i'm not going down that path emphatically but i do question the motivation of of roger bushell the man who led it and i do question whether it really needed to happen and i do question Actually, we think of it as being unique. It certainly wasn't. And it and it was by no means the biggest escape by POWs in the Second World War. So when you think of a prisoner of war camp, you think of them all like basically sitting around in their bunks, leaning on the side of the court, just generally dossing around. I, theoretically, they could just sit there and live out the rest of the war that way. But is that an accurate view of a prisoner of war camp? What were the conditions like? Why would you want to escape other than the obvious reasons? There's a very good book, which I recommend uh, listeners buy, called The Colditz Myth by an academic called S.P. McKenzie. You know, I say it's by an academic. He is a professor, Canadian, I think. Um, But it's not it's not written in academic style. 
And actually, it, it takes a look at what conditions are like in POW camps. And let's just concentrate initially on um, conditions for British and Commonwealth or Empire troops. Mm. And let's just concentrate on camps for officers, just to begin yes. with, because that's what we're talking about, Stalagla of Three. I, I think conditions for officers in most camps, which were called uh, a Lager or Offlag, and Colditz was famously called Offlag 4C. You know, everybody knows that. Uh, the, the prisoner of war camp that we're talking about, the Great Escape, was a, was a Stam Lager for the airmen, so Stalag Luft 3. But again, it was for officers. They're commonly referred to as kind of like minor public schools or grammar schools in the woods with huts. And and indeed, that's what they were like in many ways. A lot of people came from those sort of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people were quite posh. Um, a lot of them were very young. You know, they're anything from sort of 18 to 40. They were largely either privately educated or had been to you know, a, a, a grammar school or something or equivalent. They all knew each other at home in some way, not just because the RF, a lot had social connections. So you see in camps like Colditz, you have some of the truly quite posh people in Colditz, you know, almost had a sort of separate club, you know, because they all knew each other before the war. So they went from one house party in Gloucestershire to the RAF, <laughs> or to, to, to the army, to, you know, some guards regiment, and then they up at Colditz. And then they had sort of, mm. so you, you got to remember that these places then had their own communities within the community, but they were like, they were like schools. If I remember correctly as well, I think it's referenced in Midge Gillies' book, Barbed Wire University, there was an officer's camp that had its own Masonic lodge. Did it? No, okay, I didn't know that, but that really wouldn't surprise me. And so, and as Carl was saying, yes, you could just spend your entire time leaning against a hut, you know, hands in your pockets, doing, you know, bugger all. I think, you know, I think that even though awareness of mental health issues was much more in infancy than it is today, I think there was a recognition that you needed to keep busy, you know, and normally that would involve you know, as in the Midge, Midge Gillies book, Bardwell University, another good book, um, you would, um, you know, you could study for your accountancy exams, you could do a degree, you could, you know, there would be plenty of people who used to be teachers who could teach you things, you could learn a language, might be useful to learn German. Um, you know, you, you, could, you, could, you could keep yourself occupied. And you would also keep yourself occupied by, you know, people would be moved from hut to hut, so you weren't in the same room with the same people for years on end. So I mm. think that, where the kind of analogy to a sort of school breaks down is that you've got to remember these people are imprisoned and there is no holiday in March. There is no holiday in December. And so they they have all the negative aspects of being in a prison. But if, if you and I are all in a prison today in Britain, I mean, even though every lag denies that he should be there, right? But you know that if you yeah. hit someone over <laughs> the head and nick their phone, yeah, you know why you're in prison. These people are in prison because they failed, right? They got yeah. shot down. You know, there's a sense of failure there. Okay, it may not be their mm. fault, but it, it, it's it's definitely, you know, you feel that you didn't succeed. And that's what Roger Bushell, who went on to lead the Great Escape as a squadron leader, felt that he was shot down his first day of combat operations on his second sortie. He had a terrific sense of failure about him. And then you end up in a POW camp. And of course, the other problem you've got is that while you're in a POW camp for five years, six years, you know, however long it is, all your friends who remain out of captivity are, are, are getting promoted. They're winning medals. They're shooting down baddies. They, they are going up the ladder. But saying that, if you're on a POW camp, your chances of being killed are almost zero. You, know, you are yeah. safe. Just, not, I don't yeah. want to go into too much length about the conditions in other camps, but because it's not 
strictly relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah. But certainly conditions for NTOs were tougher, but also more free. So under the Geneva Protocol, officers couldn't work. So they couldn't do any kind of manual labor or, you know, whereas under the Geneva Protocol, NCOs, private soldiers could work down coal mines, could work in fields, could 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 work. And and we made German POWs work in, in the UK and, and, and it, that was fine. And, you know, so a lot of affairs with British women happened. It is a very under-researched bit of history with German yeah. German things, as you might imagine. And and but the officers weren't allowed to work under the Geneva Protocols because it was considered work was considered ungentlemanly, as as well you know. And so therefore well, anybody I, with a public school education I know, I mean, want to well, do actual well, work, I, know, I, just, I feel a constant sense of failure every time I have to do a day's work. <laughs> and, and and I and I so it, it's actually the, the psychological impact of not doing any work of course is great so mm. in fact the mental health issues amongst the officers was was far greater and you read red cross reports was far greater uh, uh, than it was amongst the ncos so anyway that is a reason for why some officers wanted to escape because you know it was something to do yeah, yeah. Uh, i just want to while we talk about that i just want to just point out that it's that only a third of POWs roughly wanted to escape or wanted to take any part in escape activities. And two thirds really just didn't want anything to do with it. And there are a lot of people in the camp that thought that actually escaping is a total waste of time. You're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from you know, Dover. You know, yeah. Literally as a crow flies, you know, Selagluf 3 is six, 700 miles as a crow flies or as a Spitfire flies, let alone actually how you might even actually navigate back. Yeah. So a lot yeah. of thoughts wasted time. You're just going to make the Germans angry. It's not going to achieve anything. Um, so why don't I just get on my accountancy yeah. exams? And that's why you should read the Midge Gillies book because it's about the men who weren't the heroes, you know, who weren't the gung ho brigade or the tally ho brigade as the two thirds mm-hmm. called the one. So you, you've mentioned very eloquently in your rage there, very cathartically that the whole thing is just a bit shit. Bit folly and the senseless waste of you know fifty murdered lives. So why is it that shit? Yeah, what's wrong with the Great Escape? What's wrong with the Great Escape? Okay, so I think the fundamental problem with the Great Escape is the number of people that Roger Bushell, the, the squadron leader who led it, wanted to get out. It, you had in Germany at the time run by the criminal police, the Kripo, um, whenever prisoners escaped, you would have different levels of alert put out called fandungs. Yeah. Okay. Alarms. And if there was a mass breakout and mass breakouts were common. So let's not, you know, you, you the, the French officers had the biggest escape of the war, but yeah, we don't, we don't like to talk about that because they're <laughs> French. We don't talk about the French and let them win this. Russian prisoners were... Apologies to our fran- French uh, listeners. No, no, I mean, <laughs> were fair play. We should recognise the fact the French officers did have the biggest escape. There were other great escapes by British officers. And there were Russian NTOs escaping all the bloody time. Yeah. Let's not forget there was a mass breakout of German officers as well. In, in Britain. Wales. Yes. Newport. I, you can still go to that camp. You can still go to the camp. And... Um, you, you, you've got so this idea that first of all it's unique is, is obviously complete nonsense. So when you have a mass breakout of prisoners, so the year before the Great Escape, which took place in March 1944, you had a mass breakout of British POWs from another POW camp 
And when they all escaped, and I think it was, a, I can never remember the numbers, about, about 50, so not quite as big as Great Escape, but certainly enough to be a mass breakout. The German security services do what's called a Sonderfandung, a special alarm, in which nearly every man in uniform in Germany, whether he's a member of the equivalent of the Forestry Commission or the, you know, the Girl Guides mm. or whatever it is, they're all activated, if you like. And they're told just to keep an extra lookout. And then members of the criminal police, and just your average Bobby on the beat equivalent, is put on a railway crossing or a bridge or somewhere where they think prisoners might end up going over. So there's enhanced security. But they're not bringing frontline troops back from, I don't know, the Russian front to search yeah. for people you know, with inside the Third Reich. So it's going to make no difference to the fighting capability of of the armed forces of, of the Wehrmacht. Yeah. Mm. You know, you're not grounding Luftwaffe pilots to look for prisoners. You know, you're not bringing men off the front. If you're sitting in a barracks doing nothing, well, then you might be used to search for prisoners. And that's fine. OK, it's annoying for the Germans, but it has no material effect on their war effort whatsoever. These people aren't doing the else. You know, that's the point. That's their job mm. is literally mm. to do this. So it's not... There's no opportunity cost for the Germans. It doesn't mean that you know, so this idea that the Great Escape, and this enrages me, is a new front opening inside Germany is total bollocks, total bollocks. And you see it even on that Channel 5 show I was on, which was a really good show and I advise people to watch it. But you have other authors saying, Bushel said this is a new front and it's going to open up. It's crap, total crap. You know, I, I, was, I, I was really annoyed when they cut me saying that. So I'm very grateful to have the opportunity on this to say, new front inside Germany, utter, utter crap. I'll make a point not to cut that out. So that's nonsense. It's total nonsense. B, there's this concept called blowback, right? So once you've got an enhanced security situation, and blowback, which you could define as a fact, is the law of unintended consequences. And anyway, then what happens when you have this Zonderfandung, this enhanced security situation in which all these people in uniform are standing on level crossings and looking for you. Every other person on the run in Germany from other POW camps is also has far greater chance of being arrested. Any foreign labourer trying to abscond, any slave, anyone escaping from I don't know, a concentration camp, even mm. a regular criminal, anyone escaping therefore has a tougher time to escape. So with this British Great Escape of 1943, so not our Great Escape, but from a camp called Zubin, right? So in that, I've read the papers in the National Archives, they're in my book, I've got a photograph of them. In that escape, as a result of the Sonderfandung, the enhanced security situation, the Germans rounded up 8,000 people on the run in the Third Reich, right? So those 8,000 people might be pretty bloody angry with the British... <laughs> You've just totally effed this up for us, right? Yes. You've totally, totally you know, ruined it. You know, if, and that is another reason. That enrages me. This is never mentioned. Why is this never mentioned? The Germans at the time said to Roger Bushel and his cronies, yeah. and the man called Pieber, one of the German officers at Sandler 3, said, if you're going to escape, and we all know you are, because the relationship, and this is where the school thing works, you know, the guards, the officer guards were quite, you know, avuncular and schoolmasterly. And they were saying, listen, guys, we know you're trying to escape. We know you're being naughty boys. You know you're trying to steal the sweets and the tuck shop equivalent, right? 
don't get out in a big escape because you're really going to really you're not you're going to have less chance. Peeber, this guy said, get out in twos and threes because then you're never going to have this shitstorm descending upon you. You know the Sonder Fandung. So get out in twos and threes. And literally the Germans advised them that was the best way to escape. Now, you may say, I'm not listening to my enemy's advice in the middle of the bloody war. You know, fair. Mm-hmm. fair enough. You're telling me not to mass escape. But people, the, that would that would assume that the relationship between the guards and prisoners in that camp was as bipolar as a commando comic would want it to be. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. The, 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 the relationship between those men was one of mutual respect. They were all flyers. There was all that leftover from the First World War of Knights of the Air. It was still seen as a very gallant type of service to be in. There was a lot of affection or fondness, if you like, between the sort of 40-year-old guards and the 18, 20-year-old young officer prisoners. So the relationship wasn't a sort of kind of yin-yang, black-white, you know, polarised thing it was. So the, as I argue in my book, the prisoners, Bushel had a very good idea that actually this wasn't this was going to be counterproductive, and yet still he goes on and does it, right? So he's yeah. screwing it up for everyone else. For everyone else, he's he's also going to make it less likely that the two hundred he's trying to get out are going to get anywhere. And also, the, the one element I haven't mentioned yet: the mood in Germany had changed against what they called terror flyers. You know, if hmm. someone had bombed, I live near Salisbury, if someone bombed Salisbury and killed, you know, my children in Salisbury this evening, right? I'd be pretty angry. Yeah. Right? I'd be really angry. In fact, we've had terror attacks in Salisbury. Yes. Right? My daughter could have picked up a bottle of Novichok, you know, thinking it was a perfume bottle and just died, right? So I'd be pretty angry with whoever did that. And And even if it is a war, it was felt that the bombing of Germany by the US Army Air Force, by the RAF, had gone on so long, was so punitive, was so horrible. So therefore, anyone who was an airman was regarded as being a terrorist. And and yeah. escaping airmen were just regarded as, as being people who really shouldn't be given any quarter. And there was edicts given to that. Thing. The, the, the commandant, Lindiner, said to the senior British officer, listen, Things have changed. I cannot guarantee your safety if you're recaptured anymore because you might be handed over to the Gestapo or the SS. Right. So escaping is no longer a sport, was his famous leaflet yeah. that went around the camps. Yeah. Okay, but the bo- yeah, when that went around the camps, doesn't matter. But the bottom line was there were verbal communications between Lindina and the British saying, that, and the Americans, there were Americans in the camp, but they'd been moved compounds. They weren't yeah. on Grace Cape. And they they were warned: do not do this because yeah. it's gonna it's gonna a blow back. It's gonna cause you more more of you to be arrested. It's gonna ruin it for lots of other people. <laughs> so and b, you know what? It's likely you might not come back to this camp, you know, alive. Yeah, yeah. in one piece. So and that enrages me. None of this is mentioned. None of this is mentioned in any documentary ever, 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 ever. And it's obviously in my book, and it's obviously you're allowing yeah. me to do this podcast. So I'm, I, I do get hacked off about this because it's, it's just such bollocks. Anyway, well, I think that's yeah, that's, the uh, that's as good and told. Isn't another, it? another, <laughs> I have another, another swig. It's only my second Ooh. can of beer. Okay, okay mate, go on. Yeah, yeah, okay. Calm down, guy. <laughs> it's not called history um, apoplexy. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, having, having had, you know, my Boxing Day traditions with my dad now thoroughly ruined, you know, is there anything <laughs> about The Great Escape that we can feel proud of, that we can celebrate? Yeah, there's, there is plenty we can celebrate. And I, I mean, you know, and I... I, I Obviously, my, my book is slightly more temperate than I'm being here, um, but it's nice to have this opportunity to vent my spleen a bit because I'm now just so sick of endless documentaries ignoring me. Um, I uh, yes, there's plenty to celebrate. I think I think first of all, you've got to remember these guys are shitboard, right? They're in the middle of a woods, in the middle of a Silesia. If you've ever been there, you know, I, I sincerely hope you both come when we do some tours. Mm. It's it's. It, I'm trying to advertise the tours now. I'm going to say it's a, really, <laughs> it's a really boring place. It's flat. It's wooded. The food's crap, and that's just today. It was even worse then, yes. as you might imagine. And yeah. um, and it, it's um, it's a terrible place to be. And being stuck in a pine forest in Silesia, yeah, your you, the view is no greater than you know, two hundred yards to some trees, and that's your lot. And I think the sense of claustrophobia, I think the desire to get out. If you're a kind of young, spirited chap, you know, yeah, yeah. you've got to get out. And I, I think there's a man called Sidney Dowes, this very sort of handsome Spitfire pilot who was on The Great Escape and he obviously survived because he was free to be able to say, well, why did you take part? And he says, well, I just wanted to see a bit more of Germany before the end of the war. <laughs> you know, so, so I mean, actually, that to me is as good a reason as any. Yeah, you know, actually, I just want... I just wanted to, you know, have. A, I, I, yeah, don't underestimate. And I like this bit. Is that don't underestimate that pissing around is good fun, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. You, you, I don't know, Paul. You probably pissed around at school. I certainly did, Carl. Uh, hell of a lot, yes. Yeah. <laughs> My no. GCSE results. Carl, really did you piss around at well. school? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> but the older I get, the more the more fond I am of pissing around. And I and I re- remembering the fun it is is just you know just. Not being truly bad, but just being, hmm. you know, just enjoying yourself yeah. and letting your hair down. And 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 I think that these chaps wanted to piss around. And and yeah. why wouldn't you? You know, you were you were stuck in a bloody camp. You... Well, I imagine. I, I imagine if they'd have in your school days, guy, if they'd have gathered everybody into like a central assembly hall and gone right. There is no way in hell you boys are tunneling out of Eton. You'd have barely got the sentence finished before shovels would have been produced sure, and, no, absolutely. Yeah, and, and a yeah. trap would have been opened you know there have all been silver shovels and, eaten, <laughs> and silver spoons would have been but yeah. i, I have got uh, the first years to do all the digging 
thought, yes. I mean, you know, as soon as someone tells you not to do something, it's human nature, surely. And in any school boy or school girl, it's a, you know, forbidden fruit's always the tastiest, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and it's, that's the point. So someone tells you not to do something, there's going to be an element within any institution which go balls to that, you know, I'm now on to do it. Yeah, and you know, paint your huts green or paint them blue or you know, whatever. But you know, that's it's that bloody mindedness of yeah, and and of course these guys, and also they, you know, they are. I don't think there's anything wrong with glory hunting. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking. Actually, what if I am one of the chaps who makes it home? You know, and quite a lot did, as you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the Great Escape. Three out of eighty yeah. made it home. It's not really a plot spoiler. I think anyone seeing the film knows that there were some who got home and. And I and, and but obviously there was a very slim chance of any Brit making it home unless they were absolutely fluent in, in, in some foreign language. But it's no accident those who made it home were Dutch and two Norwegians, both of which at the time were part of the Third Reich and therefore had a reason for travelling around the Third Reich because they were posing as foreign labourers. Yeah. Or, you know, internal Third Reich, non-German labourers. So it, it's very hard for to, to get home. But I, I, I think that... I think that the kind of bloody mindedness I salute, the the you know, I haven't spoken about the inventiveness of the POWs, the yep. the the trolleys. You've got to take your hat off to that. Again, I do kind of withdraw a bit from the inventiveness because a lot of people think that all this stuff was invented for the Great Escape, like you know the the kit bags releasing sand in their trousers, and that may have been invented, but the air pumps and the trolleys and all this technology. The technology was passed on, you know, ha- you know, uh, mouth mouth to mouth, word of mouth, amongst POW camps throughout the war, and much of those technologies had actually been invented in POW camps in the First World War. And so there was that again. We think yeah. of all the technology in the Great Escape as being, isn't it brilliant what they did in the Great Escape? Yeah, but they did it in other camps, and yeah, yeah. they'd done it twenty five years before in the First World War. And a lot of the men in the, in the POW camps in the Second World War had read escape memoirs from the First World War, and that had informed them as to what to do. So mm. I'm not belittling the fact I can't make an air pump, even if you gave me the design. I just had to make a clothes rack for my wife, you know, and <laughs> and. It, it's crap. You know, it, it can't even sustain the weight of a pair of jeans because I haven't made it very well. So, you know, these people are seriously inventive and they have good you know, scientific engineering brains and backgrounds, yeah. which CRF typically has attracted. So, you know, not woolly humanity students. So, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot of brilliant thinking. I think there's a lot of ingenuity, making uniforms, making passes, which aren't all brilliant. I think there's a lot of bravery there, but I think some of that bravery may be misplaced. I think it could have been yeah. channeled a different way. You mentioned a, well, both in your books and in your talks and tonight, that mass breakouts are not unique to Stalag Love 3. And that really the only thing that singles The Great Escape out is the murders after it. I think that's right. I, th- I think that there were a lot of mass breakouts during the war. I'm, I'm not an expert on where and when they all happen, but certainly you can even, I think, I mean, dare I say that Wikipedia is now on the page about mass breakouts in the Second World War. And yeah, that, that's how popular they are, guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They, they, yes, exactly, exactly. In fact, on, on, on Wrongopedia. But anyway, the I, I think that it, it's 
first and foremost, I think what we've got to get back to is the fact the reason why we think about it a lot is is because, as you, Paul, you quite rightly say, it's because 50 people got murdered. Yeah. Not shot, not shot while escaping, murdered. Let, let's be brutal about this. You're shot having a piss with your cock in your hand on the side of a road in the back of a head, right? That's what happened to them. Yeah. Right? I didn't put that in the book, and I haven't said that on air. And I and that is that is no bloody way to go. That is yeah. no way to go. And let's be absolutely realistic about when you're shot pissing, what that means. Okay, that is the true vulgar horrificness of what's happening to you. And of course, you know, it's all kind of somewhat glossed over, but it's horrible. It's really horrible. And and that is not the death that, you know, Roger Bushel would have expected himself to have. He would have expected himself to go on down the blaze of glory in a spitfire, being attacked by 20 Messerschmitts and having taken out three. You know, blah, blah, blah. Not shot having a piss in the side of some boring little road in Germany by some boring little man, actually. You know, and it's 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 yeah, this wasn't just done, cruel buddy. and horrible. No, you know, it's cream not in the movie. Race, it's not in the movie. But, you know, that's the real, that's what it was. They were told to take a piss. A pinkelpauser, you know, as the Germans call it, a pee stop. And they were shot while urinating. So, you know, that again is another element of it that's really horrible, actually, and glossed over. And that yeah. sort of enrages me a bit. Yeah, right. Yeah, so. so what, in your opinion, would be a great escape? Something that you would give that title to on all sides of the war? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I'm not a total connoisseur of all the kind of escapes that took place. Um, mm. and, and there's certainly a lot yeah. of escapes that have been sort of had, had um, a lot of, of sort of you know, mythology like the Great Escape built up around them. I think that the German breakout in Newport is something that's sort of great in a way because... I mean, it's an ealing comedy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that really is that really is Germans pissing around in Wales, isn't it? I mean, they, <laughs> there was a Channel Four talk about it a while ago. I, I I think that's great in a kind of ironic way because they knew that it's it's really hard to escape from an island. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah, it's 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 really 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 impossible. I mean, I mean, I I, I, don't, I don't I don't dispute for one minute that. I, I mean, and again, I don't, I don't speak with this full range of knowledge of every escape that took place yes. in the war. And I'm sure there are, you know, some people who might, you know, email me as a result of this and go, "Well, well there was a better escape from, you know, you know off lag twenty seven B by you know Field Marshal Moriarty yeah. and his cat or whatever." But I, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think the Airy Neve escape from Colditz is bloody brilliant. You know, disguised as a German and just walking out the out the camp. I love yeah. that, and I was really really upset because of you know as we talk omicron is in full flow and i was planning to go to germany um as you two may know in, in next month in january to retrace airy neve's escape from colditz with his grandson sebastian yes. in real time mm. you know so literally we'd cross the swiss border you know at whatever it is you know, five o'clock in the morning um and but you know sleep on the train and do all the do all the same thing sit in the cinema on smoke all day probably can't do that now mm. but anyway i, I think the airy neve escapes a great escape i think i think i think some of those escapes and colditz are great escapes you know alan larray first guy out amazing escape i like guys who just sort of vault over the thing i, I, I like yeah. escapes I think for me, great escapes generally. So I can't really answer it specifically. Yes. That's what I'm coming to here. I think for me, great escapes 
are ones done on a whim. They suddenly spot, oh, I can just get through that gap in the trees, and 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 somehow without any backup, without anything else, or I can get through that, or there's a just a blind spot as we march in file. And suddenly, within two weeks, they're in Britain, and they've just winged it yeah. all the way. So I like those ones, and I think actually the French were better at it than we were. But then the French had a reason for being walking around Germany because they could be forced labourers. So there's yeah. an instant advantage. Whereas we look so terribly British. You know, <laughs> and and, and I, I, I talk very, very briefly. I talk about a book, a man called Desmond Plunkett, who looks just like a man called Desmond Plunkett. And he even accidentally spoke in British, you know, English as he sort of walked around Germany. And of course, he didn't last very long. Whereas, you know, I think, and I remember my first time I went to Colditz and a man called John Smith who lived there, who was a Brit who lived in a help run a and b and he sort of came up to me and said you're british and i said well how do you know he said you just look british <laughs> i said pete's sake you know i'm quartered german which i am quartered german and 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 i'm still quite angry that i look that british I, I i thought i was blending in seamlessly but of course i was walking around thinking i own the place probably <laughs> <laughs> so going back to going back to bushel and uh, where we made him for another tidal wave of rage here. I've got the I've got the script, and I'm wincing already, dear <laughs> listener. <laughs> Do go on, Paul. Carry on. Okay, so goes straight to the chase. Then is Roger Bushell culpable for his own murder, and and the other forty nine that were murdered with him? Did he have it coming? How much of the blame can we put on him? Yeah, he didn't pull the trigger, but. Big questions. Uh, yeah. Big questions. We're all about the big questions here on yeah, History yeah. It's, it's a really good question. And it, and it's, podcast. I, 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 it's, a, it's a really good question. It's a question that makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. Why does it make me feel uncomfortable? Because there's a part of me which goes, you know what? He may be responsible for his death. He may be responsible for the death of those 49. That there were rumblings, there were rumblings, and this is in the last chapter of my book, of people who thought, why, why, why did my son die? Why, why, why was this take, why did this take place? This wretched escape, total waste of time. And there were prisoners at the time who said it was a waste of life. Um, So I'm not just expressing my own, you know, Post ipso facto, wise after the vent opinion, blah blah blah. There yeah. were people at the in the camp at the time who said maybe we shouldn't have done it. Maybe it was the wrong thing to have done. Maybe we knew it was the wrong thing to have done. There were relations. I mean, so, sorry, I'll be in Bushel's slightly in Bushel's defence there because I do actually think that while he he didn't pull the trigger, there's a lot of steps that he could have taken that would have avoided this situation 100%. But the other 49, in fact, the other you know, 199 that took part in it, they they all knew what they were getting into. I don't they, think they, they have to have all knew no, the risks. I don't. I don't think they did know the risks. I no. I, I it's it's a good it's a good point, and I I can't be definitive as to the answer is whether every man on that escape. I mean, there were 200 in the hut who were trying to get out and 80 got out. Did they know, did, did the, did the junior officers know the risks that was being run? And there was a realistic chance that there might be a kind of Gestapo shit show. No other word for it. It's going to rain upon their heads big time. I don't think they did. I really don't think they did know. 
I do think that the senior British officer, I do think that Bushell, it wasn't the senior British officer, but he's in charge of what we call the X activities. Yeah, the big X. Big X. So he's in charge of intelligence gathering and escaping. I think Bushell had a very good idea that this was this was risky. And I, I and I I, 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 I am, you know, having read the German, you know, reports and interrogations about what they told the prisoners, I, I think that there was, I think, was there a cover up by Bushel and other senior officers on the escape, like Wings Day, to not tell the junior officers what the risks were? I don't know. I just can't answer that. But I do think that were the prisoners told that the mood had changed against them. And if you were going to do a big action, not only were you going to make it harder for the reasons of blowback, which I've described, mm-hmm. but you're also going to actually risk having yourselves in the arms of the Gestapo. And by March 1944, people knew what that meant. You know, when you're in the, with the Gestapo, you're, you're not having a fun time, right? So I think that I don't, I wonder how much that was transmitted down to the lower ranking officers i don't think enough was so i i think that that there is a culpability that you could attach to bushel in which yes did he think he was doing the right thing probably did he think that this is going to waste the germans time probably was he wrong yes was there a duty for officers to escape? No. It's another thing that enrages me because there was nothing in the King's regulations here to escape. You just had to evade being captured. Once you were captured, there was no formal duty to escape. You had yeah. a kind of moral duty perhaps to escape, but there was no formal duty to escape. So, and which is why two thirds of people didn't feel they had to. Right? Yeah. Um, so you, you, I think, I think that Bushel, is responsible in the way that a gung-ho colonel has ordered an attack on that hill. And actually, someone might turn around and say, but sir, you know, we don't need to take that hill. We could maybe work our way around it, but he's just going, we need to take that hill. We've got to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he's wrong. And and do, do we blame that colonel? That's his decision. That's how armies yeah. work. That's how armed forces work. Sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you get it right. What what if the great escape was the last but one escape before people were shot afterwards? So, and what yeah, if like eight people had got out? Who knows? Busher was taking a massive risk with young men's lives, but that is the nature of warfare. Yeah, that you is, take risks with your men's lives. That is his so that's job. why I'm equivocating, clearly. I'm equivocating. If I was the dad of one of the young men who got shot, then, yeah, I probably would really blame him. Yeah, I really would. Said so you absolutely yeah. won't use the word, you sacrificed my son for this act of folly just to make yourself feel better, right? That's that's the harshest way of looking at it. The defence of Bushel would be to say, you know what? Getting Keeping these young men occupied, doing the, the whatever it is, it was still something to do with the war effort. I mean, it was still the most we could do, so therefore do it. Yeah. So don't just sit there and do nothing. Do something. If you were tying yeah. up 10 men, that's something. It just means something. It's good for morale. It means that we didn't just sit the war out. I can come back home after six years. I was in a POW camp, but I tried to get out every day. Yeah. So I, I get that narrative. If you've been escaping for the past five years and every time that you've escaped, you've been brought back, put in the cooler for 14 days and 
There's no net loss there. Yeah. The worst that can happen is you go back to prison. Yeah. Yeah, you I don't, don't think even with the changing. Extent. So, so that's why I'm equivocating. So I don't get, I don't sit there and go, Roger Bushell, what a wanker for doing this. But at the same time, I do think, actually, mate, you could have probably held off on this. Yeah, yeah. It was one. I think it was love. I think you rolled the dice one too many times, and you rolled it with a lot of young men. And I think you had a pretty good idea how risky it was. And I wonder how risky those young men realised it really was. Mm. And I, I, and that's. Uh, that's a difficult, difficult question because if they didn't know and if he hadn't told them, if we know he hadn't told them, we don't, then then that does put him in a, in a poor amount. Yeah, that changes yeah. things quite dramatically. So just to round off, we've spoken a lot about the prisoners, why they would escape. Da, da, da. What about the people who murdered them, the actual Gestapo? Yes, what? yeah. What happened to them? What happened to the murderers of the people who escaped? Well, um, uh, there were a lot of people involved in the murders. There were Gestapo officers. Um, I mean, it, the, the, the chain of command goes right off to Adolf Hitler himself, who issued the, the infamous order to, to shoot 50 of them. Some of the murderers were Creepo, so criminal policemen. Um, some of them were Gestapo, secret state police. Um, I mean, you know, some of the, I mean, the people pulling the triggers were all Gestapo men, largely, I think. Yes, they were. But, you know, you had Arthur Neighbour, the head of the Creepo, who was deciding on his desk, you know, looking at the cards of the guys who had been recaptured. And he put one pile saying these guys die, another pile saying these guys live. But he was part of the murder process. Largely, a lot, some of them died fighting the Russians. Some of them disappeared into obscurity, very few. Some of them were brought to justice and hanged. But the later they were brought to justice, the less chance there was of them being facing capital punishment. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's something I cover quite a lot in my book about hunting Nazis, yes. a book called Hunting Evil. And so I think, I think stringing Germans up as a kind of punishment for these things kind of ended by the mid 50s. Um, yeah. So if you manage to get away with it for 10 years, chances are you might receive a relatively slap on the wrist style custodial sentence and there was a feeling you know within britain at the time during some of the trials of the great escape murderers and these were you know gestapo officers you know largely low-ranking gestapo officers that actually they had no choice but to do this that's actually bollocks um there was a man called alfred schimmel who was head of the gestapo effectively in luxembourg and and he readily admits in his testimony that if one of his Gestapo officers refused to carry out the order, he just would have got another one to do it. Yeah, you know, there was no idea, there was yeah. no sense that there was a punishment. Mm. So I mean, of course, what Schimmel is saying, this is a crucial piece of testimony in, in indeed in the whole bloody war about this whole idea of Zippenhaft and, and all these things about you know mutual responsibility, you know, family responsibility, or if you refuse to obey an order. You know, that is the head of the Gestapo in Luxembourg saying on trial there would have been no comeback for the Gestapo officers if they refused to do it, right? But the Gestapo officer's <laughs> defence was, I had to do it, otherwise I was going to be shot. Total crap. You know, um, so yeah. therefore, um, yeah, so the, the justice, there was an RAF special investigation branch mounted to hunt down the 50, to hunt down the killers of the 50. That's how seriously it was taken. But, you know, the number of dead in The Great Escape it's horrible. It's 50 men, but there were bigger massacres in the Second World yes. War. There were bigger crimes yeah. in the Second yes. World War. Um, you know, some of the which go into, you know, 
two commas of men, you know, yeah. <laughs> women and children, famously, uh, notoriously. And so, you know, there were retributive battlefield slaughters carried out, which make the Great Escape look relatively yeah. small in some ways. So, so I, I, but it was felt that, you know, the Germans had really broken the rules on this one. Yeah. You know, and that was, it was suddenly felt that, you know, you really don't shoot prisoners. I mean, there was always an understanding. Yeah. Well, maybe in the, in the heat of a battle after a battle, which you watched your best man being blown up, you might kill a few yeah. people in front of at the end of the battle. I sort of, yeah, I get that. I don't defend it. I get it. But there was something very cynical about the Great Escape Murders. And that was why it was regarded as being su- something that demanded a special amount of justice. So, there's an appendix in the back of my book which answers Carl's question in its fullness. I have a tally of what happened to all the people involved and, and their eventual fate. But I think that basically only about half really faced justice. Yeah. Wow. And even then, you know, they didn't all get hanged. You know, a lot of them just did a few years in the clink and whatever. Uh, and then and then out. Yeah. And then out. Yeah. 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 And then completely overshadowed by a completely fictional motorbike chess. Well, Which you see, the final crime. I, I, you want me to be enraged about that, and I, and I, yeah, no, no, I don't know if you do, but people it. often expect me to be enraged about it. And I, I, I took part in that Guy Martin program about jumping over, recreating Great Escape thing, which some, 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 of you, some listeners may have heard on, seen on, uh, on, on Channel Four a couple of years ago. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind. First of all, Americans were involved in the Great Escape. They didn't actually escape, yeah. but they were involved. Then they got moved compounds shortly before the escape happened. But they were involved in the security around it. And there's a man called Clark, who was known as Big S, the security guy. So, yeah, Americans were on the Great Escape. So did anyone tell you that Americans were on the Great Escape and it's all Hollywood? Well, they sort of were, actually. You know, the motorbike thing is such obvious Hollywoodization that... And everyone knows it is, right? I mean, no, 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 no one really believes that bit's true. That's no more true than where Eagles Dare is true. That's just fun. You know? What? It's um, not true? And it was, it, it, no, sorry, Carl. Oh, I can no. see see the disappointment. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, but don't James Garner and um, Donald Pleasant get in a plane? Yes, from memories. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, actually, that's weirdly true, but not on the Great Escape because there were two escapers, uh, Morrison, a man whose his nickname was Diana Morrison. Um, but he he and another chap did not on the Great Escape, but from Stanley Three did go to the nearby airfield which is now where local poles practice driving. And um, and it's full of Cold War bunkers, if anyone likes all that sort of stuff. And um, and they, they, they try to nick a plane. So, that, I mean, that's sort of got an element of truth Ooh. to it, you know. Because they're all airmen. They had a pretty good idea of how a plane worked. So that bit's true. But, yeah, the motorbike, yeah, yeah. it's fun. There is a yeah. statue of Steve McQueen on his motorbike in Zagan, the town where Stanley of Three is. So, so actually, we're not allowed to be outraged yeah, about it. That if they can put have it there, that's. I fair. mean, they put it. I mean, I I do find it a bit silly that that's there. I mean, actually, you know, if there's a statue to anybody, you know, maybe it should be to the actual people involved yeah. rather than Steve yeah. Bloody McQueen. But anyway, yeah. there is, as you know, a memorial at near the camp. Yes, just in the set. No one goes to that unless they're British, you know, frankly. But um, if you're in the centre of town, all you'll know about the Great Escape. If you're just a local, it's just there's this man on a motorbike, so it's quite strange. So maybe I should be more enraged about it. Grr, motorbike. Next, next, and it's the wrong type of motorbike. Oh, <laughs> oh bloody hell! I'm not. I don't care. 
I, what enrages me is people say about that motorbike that Steve McQueen wrote into the film. It's, it's the wrong motorbike. It's not a motorbike they would have had in Germany. It's a Triumph or it's a Norton or a Triton and not a BMW or a, I don't care. I just yeah. don't yeah. care. Stop caring about small stuff. Yeah. Like the helicopter. Well, the the helicopter is a helicopter. Hel- it, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter. Where Eagles Dare. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, if you well, turned up in well, a, if you turned up in a Harrier jump jet, that would be a bit annoying in Where Eagles Dare, I admit. Yes. But not it doesn't matter. Yeah. Just but not completely off with it. Yeah, it's not completely off. Um well, thank you very much, guys. And uh, and listeners, our apologies to anyone whose Boxing Day traditions have now been royally destroyed. Ha ha um please don't let it stop you enjoying what is really a cracking film guy thank you very much for getting that off your chest oh god i feel so much better i feel i feel purged the catharsis has been fantastic thank you guys (laughs) i feel like it's been an hour with my counselor if you'd like to know more about the great escape then do read guy's excellent book on the subject the real great escape and we're going to put links to that in the show notes and you can follow guy on twitter at guy walters Guy, once again, thank you for coming on History Rage. Excellent episode, Guy. Thank you so much. Cheers, chaps. Yes. You're you welcome. Too. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at History Rage, or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage. We want to know what really gets on your wick. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Podchaser, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot to us if you can do that. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks a lot for taking the rage. Keep it going. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.